Welcome to Talking Bass. Join bass angler Don Clark as he shares bass fishing knowledge of the Northwest. Well, welcome to Talking Bass in PDX as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark and I'll be your host. Welcome aboard everybody as we get underway. I do have a special guest on this episode, but before we talk to him, let me talk to you about Talking Bass in PDX, the podcast. The podcast is all about fishing in the Northwest, and if you enjoy listening, help us grow by telling your friends. Put us out there on social media. We can be heard on Spotify, Anchor FM, iTunes, and now iHeartRadio. On this episode of Talking Bass and PDX, I have Bud Hartman on to talk about how to pick a rod, reel, and line. Well, I've gotten several nice emails thanking me or saying how much someone has enjoyed a past episode. Uh, here's a shameless plug. Don't stop the emails. Send them to gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. I can't think of anything I'd rather do than talk about fishing or go fishing, but maybe not in that order. As a matter of fact, from the email bag, I had an email from a listener in Colorado. Now, of course, everybody knows that this is Talking Bass and PDX. We talk about fishing here in the Northwest, Oregon and Washington, maybe a little bit into Idaho. But because I didn't ask the emailer's name, I won't give that away. But he was telling me about walleye fishing. He had listened to episode 24 with Bill Vondahy and wanted some more information about the Marsha Hartman rig. Well, I was able to pass on the information and a picture of that rig to the emailer. I know that he said he had had some great success in the past. I hope that this rig and information brings him another great fishing outing for walleye over in the Colorado area. Well, many of you know that my boat was out of order for a month. I had a trim motor go out. It took about three weeks for a new trim motor to arrive from Michigan, and I'm back in business. I have been spending some time out on the Willamette River, above the falls and below Newburgh in late May, and the smallmouth bass fishing is hot. Now, our temperatures have been a little warm this year, so that may be causing some of it. We've had plenty of high-pressure days, and as you know, the weather has been pretty decent. But this is a downwater year. As a matter of fact, our yearly outing to Prineville has been canceled because there's not enough water out there. I hope that this next year brings us a lot more water here in the Northwest. But we'll have to see. How does this affect us in the next few years? I hope that we get lots and lots of rain coming up in the rest of 2021 and definitely 2022. Well, let's get to it. My guest came to Portland in the 1950s, and Bud went to work selling fishing tackle at Freeway Sporting Goods and then went on to sell tackle in the wholesale level for many, many years. So he has a lot of tackle knowledge. Well, as I get my gear out every year, I start thinking, do I need a new rod and reel? Should I go looking? I decided before I went out and went shopping, I called Bud and talked to him about 
What could you do if you could only buy one or two rods and reels? Well, you may want to pause the podcast right now. Get yourself a pen and paper. There's a lot of information coming at you. So let's get right to it. Let's talk to Bud Hartman on how to pick a rod and reel. And I think this podcast will be helpful for everybody because even if you're a beginner, we're going to talk a lot about picking out that first rod and reel. And even if you're a seasoned professional, just reminding folks about the different kinds that are out there may spark some interest. All right, let's get to it. Here's Bud Hartman. Well, I'd like to welcome Bud Hartman to the uh, podcast today. Bud, welcome. Well, thanks for calling, Don. Well, I have been getting ready for spring fishing. We're here in May, and of course, here in the Pacific Northwest, up on the the rivers and the lakes, you know, the spawn is getting ready to take place. Right. And it seems like every spring, even though I have a whole rod locker full of rods, I always seem to migrate down to the store to buy another one. I decided I'd give you a call, and let let's talk about picking the best rod we can for the best money. If you were going to go out and pick a, a medium-priced rod, something between 150 and, say, $300, where would you begin? Well, first off, let me say, I don't think of anything between 150 and $300 as being somewhat medium-priced. Now, maybe for some of the more elite kind of fishermen that, that you and I both know, that might be so, and even we might have some rods in that price range. But if a person is just looking to get a good quality rod, either casting or spinning, it is amazing what technology has done in recent years in that you can buy some really pretty good quality stuff for, for in the $50 range, believe it or not. And if you spend $100, you can really get a it, – it, it certainly won't be a – a um, Cadillac, so to speak, but you can buy pretty top-notch rods for less than a hundred bucks now. Well, Bud, thanks for bringing me back to earth because, of course, um, spending that kind of money is a sizable investment, considering you may buy several rods. So let's talk more about those rods that are in that fifty-dollar range. Would that be a rod that a beginner would start with, or would you say more of an intermediate fisherman would start with a rod or have a rod like that in their box? Well, a beginner fisherman, you know, if it's entry-level stuff, I, I for one, do not advocate buying or looking at rods that are in the $8, $10, $12 range, so to speak, at your big box stores and so forth. They're not going to have the selection and or the quality of the kind of rods that maybe you might want to buy. And I've always been of the school of thought that a person, if they're buying a rod, reel, or whatever it happens to be, buy the best that you can afford at the time because it will not only perform better, but it will last longer, too. You'll get a lot more years of use out of it. So I'm, I, don't, I don't suggest that people look at rods that are here today and gone tomorrow that you're going to throw away or you know use it once or twice and be done with it. I think a person should buy something that, that's going to last them for a while. And believe it or not, there are some pretty good rods available by major manufacturers. A uh, good example, Abu Garcia makes some rods in the $50 retail range. 
that are uh, really, really top-notch, both casting and spinning. Berkeley has a good selection of rods like that. Uh, Kunan, believe it or not, has made a comeback. Kunan, you know, was on the market a number of years ago, and their factory had a fire, and they burned down over in, in the Orient, and they lost all of their mandrels and whatnot. But they've reawakened, and uh, they've reintroduced the Kunan rods, and you can buy some pretty good IM7 graphite rods now for in the $50 range, believe it or not. But there's Daiwa, and there's Zebco, and Quantum, and there's a whole bunch of major manufacturers that have really, really good rods for in that price range. Now, Bud, you've listed off a lot of different manufacturers, and I am sure that those manufacturers are just like cars. You know, one person's going to say, well, I only drive a Ford, and somebody's going to say, well, I only drive a Chevrolet. And, and, right. and I'm assuming that rods are the same way, and I have to say that I'm categorizing myself as one of those people who, who gravitate towards St. Croix. Uh-huh. If you're going to go shopping for a rod, now, one of the things that we have to talk about here in 2021 is the fact that a lot of people do online shopping. But if you were going right. to go to your favorite sporting goods store, a good sporting goods store, how many manufacturers would you try to look at before you made a decision to buy? Well, the first thing I would try to decide on is what kind of rod am I looking for to begin with. Rather than the manufacturer, I'd say to myself, well, am I looking for a for a fast-tip rod? Am I looking for a, for a, a medium-heavy rod? Am I looking for uh, something that will throw spinner baits better than a crank bait, for instance? Or do I want a one-piece rod or a two-piece rod? What length am I looking for? What kind of action? Do I want medium, medium-light, medium-heavy, or medium? In other words, what what kind of lures typically am I going to throw with it? Now, for all intents and purposes, if a person's buying just one, you know, if they just want to buy a good rod to have, they might say, "Well, I'm going to buy just a medium action. That will give me the best of both worlds. It'll give me a, it'll give me a somewhat fast tip. It'll also give me a parabolic action in the mid range and the medium. It'll give me good hook setting qualities and so forth and so on." So that being the case, I would say. If I were shopping and was looking for a spinning rod, for instance, my personal preference is seven foot. Now I have some six and a half foot rods that are perfectly good, but but if a person is buying just one, a seven foot is a good all around length to have, and I would definitely buy one piece. I don't want any two piece rods. I don't want some that break in the middle, so to speak. I want them to be one one piece blank medium action and I'd be in business. So to to keep it simple, we would buy seven foot rod, one piece with a, a medium action. Exactly. So that, and and let me add to that though, I also personally it's a personal preference. I prefer rods with genuine cork grips, cork handles. I don't like this foam business that a lot of the manufacturers are using now. I mean it it's okay except it has a tendency to get fish slime on it, and it gets grimy and slippery and whatnot, and cork doesn't really do that too much, and it wash, it cleans off much easier. So anyway, that's personal preference. That is a very important point, because if you think about when you're handling that rod, and especially if you're fishing all day long, um, right. I had a rod that had a line cutter on it. It was just a little round piece of... Um, Material and on the on the top of it, it had a it had a cutter. That thing drove right. me out of my mind. I finally ended up taking it off because it, it drove yeah. me so crazy. So now right. let's let's 
so you gave a whole lot of information there about the power, the tip type, and the and the rod. So let's go back. Let's let's break down that a little bit further because I don't I know what it does to to myself. It just confuses me, and and uh, you go, okay, now what am I going to buy? So if you're going to be fishing, we'll say both tight line and finesse fishing or slack line. Would one rod do it, or would you need two? Well, two would be a preference, but if you had one, I really, I really think sometimes medium light is a little too light for some of the crankbaits we might throw. It might work pretty good for what you call tight line or slack line fishing, like if you're Caroline rigging or Ned rigging with soft plastic worms or things of that nature. But if you're using a leadhead jig or a spinner bait or some of those things that go down underwater or even a Texas rig, you want a little more muscle in the tip to be able to set the hook because you're going to be fishing at different depths and you're going to have more water between you and the target, the fish down there. So you gotta, you want to be able to, when you jerk the set of hook, you don't want to be able to pull that line through there and you don't want the tip to give like a, like a rubber band. You know, you don't want it to just all of your yanking action go into the rod tip. You want it to go into the line. You want to transmit that into a hook setting. So I would say medium action would work pretty good for almost everything. Okay. And um, now with a with a seven-foot rod, which I use quite a few of them, actually, um, right. I notice that one of the things I can do with a seven-foot rod is I get great casting difference or I get great casting distances with that rod. Right. Now, if I go a shorter rod, for example, would that change my casting distance or does it does it affect my accuracy? Not, well, probably probably you know, I'm going to say this from personal experience, probably would improve your accuracy with a little shorter rod but you wouldn't get quite the distance if distance is what you're looking for. You get a different parabolic bend with even that six, like a six-and-a-half-foot rod versus a seven-foot rod. The little difference, the subtle difference in that rod length and in that material and the rod makeup itself is going to give you a whole different kind of a what, what the industry calls a parabola, the parabolic bend that takes place in the rod when the line is through the guides. It has a different throwing capacity. When you go through the casting motion and you load the rod, so to speak, I see too many people fishing that when they're casting, they're using their arm instead of the rod. A person has to learn to load the rod and let the rod do the casting, not your arm. In other words, if you're going to use your arm, you may as well be throwing hand grenades. You want to be able to hold hold your arm close to your body and load the rod on the back cast so that whatever lure you're throwing preloads the rod, so to speak. It bends the tip back in the wrong direction so that when you go forward, the rod is going to do the casting. And in that case, a seven-foot rod will throw a lure a little bit farther. Well, that's that's a, an important little piece there because loading the rod is not as easy as is you're making, you know, it sounds easy. However, when I bring the rod back, I have to make sure that it's all the way back before I let it, before I come forward with it. So it takes some practice is, is I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, and you know, and my wife, as you know, my wife is, uh, is a, a pretty fair fisherman, and I like to think that I taught her most of what she knows. But uh, they, they have certain 
certain things they already know instinctively. But when I was teaching her the proper way to cast with a rod, and I don't know, maybe maybe you've been to one of my things when I've done some in-store promos and whatnot, where I've showed people how you can teach yourself how to load a rod properly for casting. And you can use two hands, you can use one hand. There's, you know, you see the pros, you see everybody using different techniques. But one of the ways you can discipline yourself is to, uh, I would have her hold the rod in her hand, for instance, the hand she's going to cast with, and take a paperback book or anything, a, a, a notepad, anything, and pinch it between your elbow, put your arm against your body, and pinch it in between the side of your rib cage and, and the inside of your arm. And you hold the rod in that hand with the rod out at about 10 o'clock position in front of you and the lure hanging on the end. And you bring the rod up to about a noon or 1 o'clock position, if you can picture that in your mind's eye. You sort of rod is vertical or a little bit past vertical behind you. And you do that with a snapping kind of motion. You do it quickly, and the lure will flip to the back and load the rod. And then when you come forward back to about 10 o'clock with the rod to let go of the line, to let it cast, uh, the rod will throw the thing properly and, and it'll be less strain on you. If whatever you're holding under your arm, uh, between your arm and your rib cage, for instance, falls to the ground, drops out, then you get a demerit for that. You did it wrong. You want to learn to hold your rod still and let your forearm and your wrist do the casting and let the rod do the, the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're practicing that motion, you know, I use the backyard. I have a I have a fairly long right. backyard and I will uh I will keep one of the rods that I like out there near the near the garage door and I'll walk out back when I'm barbecuing and I have a target and I just practice throwing uh a quarter ounce at a target so that I right. so that, so that if I haven't fished for two or three weeks because of work or whatever, I'm not out there on my first cast trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm, I've yeah. already been practicing. So now let's throw into the mix um, not only a spinning rod, but a casting rod. I was going to say that and maybe this is going back too far, but, you know, I, I'm an old guy, as you know, and I've been around the tackle business for a lot of years. And back when I started bass fishing, well, not even when I started, even in recent history, Casting rods, for the most part, with conventional reels on them, with a revolving spool reel, a casting reel, for instance, uh, we had a lot of five, five and a half foot, six foot was un, un, unheard of rods, and they had pistol grips on them, and they were a one-handed operation with a with a trigger for your finger, you know, your index finger on your casting hand to hold it and whatnot. Hardly see any of those anymore. They still make them, and they're still available for people that want them. But but most casting rods now have gone to six, six and a half, and seven foot lengths, just like the spinning rods, and they've become two-handed casting rods. They got straight handles instead of a pistol grip offset. Still have a trigger for the index finger, but totally different concept. So casting rods that I grew up with are passe now. Hardly any. They're collectors' items for the most part. But you would use the same rules if you were looking at, at a today's casting rod as you would a spinning oh. rod, correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The only the only difference is, you know, and, and, and this is not to try to give lessons over a podcast, but, 
But a lot of people, if they're beginners or they get a casting reel, the first thing they want to do is they want to go through the casting motion by putting their thumb on the spool, for instance, and, and making a casting motion. But the first thing you want to do is turn that... God, it's hard to, to describe this on a podcast, but if you can picture this, you want to turn your hand sideways when you're holding the rod and reel in your hand. For instance, I'm right-handed, but I use a right-handed retrieve reel. But it makes no difference. If you're using a left-hand retrieve, you'd put the handles down. But when I go through a motion with a casting rod, I turn the rod 90 degrees to where the handles are literally pointing up so that the spool that the line is on is vertical. It, I mean, it's up and down from top to bottom. It's not sideways. So that it's... And the reason I do that is when you make a casting motion with your arm, especially if you're doing that paperback book thing that I just talked about a little bit, and this will greatly improve your accuracy, you hold your elbow in tight. The human wrist, if you turn it 90 degrees so that your palm is down toward the ground, your wrist will bend better than it will if your thumb is up and you're trying to make a cast with your thumb up with your hand facing like you were going to shake hands with somebody. So anyway, that that is a real, really important thing on casting with casting reels, too. Yeah. And and I don't see as many people using casting reels. However, when I am throwing a spinnerbait, and especially when I'm throwing into heavy vegetation, lily pads, you know, things of that nature, especially right. like Silver Lake or, or Ten Mile Lake, I want to be as accurate as possible because I don't want to throw where I'm gonna where I'm gonna end up hung up. So I do use a shorter um, casting rod than I do on my spinning rods, just because right. I feel my accuracy is better. But um, again, personal preference. But if you're but if you're bass fishing, that's another thing to consider too. If you're bass fishing, chances are. You're going to want to use, if you're using a casting reel anyway, you're going to want to use a little bit heavier test line than you would on the spinning outfit. Particularly if you're using, as you said, spinner baits or jigs, leadhead jigs, or even a Texas rig, Senko or a long plastic worm or lizard or something of that nature, and where you're pitching it or pitching or flipping it into cover, into a lot of weeds or grass or lily pads or whatever it happens to be. You want to be able to have enough muscle, not only in the rod, but in the line, that when you get a strike, you can really jerk that fish out of cover. You don't want to go in there and try to do it with a spinning rod with six-pound test line on it, for instance. You want to, you want to use it. I would do anyway, a casting reel, and I'm going to have 14, 16, 17-pound test line on my reel. Add some muscle to setting the hook. Yeah, that's really important to make sure that you've matched up the the rod, the line, the uh, the bait that you're throwing. Because you're right, if you get into something that's um, heavy vegetation, lily pads, and if you can't get that fish out and it breaks off, you're going to be unhappy with uh, with the result oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. Absolutely, and you and you may have killed the fish in the in the interim too. You know, it may swim off somewhere and die. Who knows? There you go. So, but, the, you know, and there's some other things to consider on this rod business, be it casting or spinning, either one. Uh, the type of guides that are on the rod. You know, we talked about manufacturers and actions and materials and so forth. But uh, lately, more and more of the manufacturers are going with hard loy or stainless steel uh, rings inside the the guides themselves 
where aluminum oxide and uh, the Fuji guides, for instance, they're still popular and they're still around, but they're heavy compared to some of the newer ones that are coming out now, the hard loy things. But the guides are very important on a rod, too, and you'll find, hardly find any rods in a, in a fairly decent price range, anyway, that have the old chrome-plated brass or what the hell ever they were guides on rods that they did for years and years and years because they wear so bad. They get grooves in them and everything else, as you know. So it's important to look at what kind of guides are on the rod when you buy one as well. Absolutely. I have a rod. I no longer use it. I got it when I was 16 years old as a birthday present. I have done exactly what you said. I have worn a groove in the um, in the guides, and oh, yeah. it's just no longer usable. I'm I'm afraid to use it because it's going to break a line. So I just no. The only the only way you can use that is to have it totally rewrapped. Take the right. guides off and put new ones on. Yeah, exactly. If you like the blank, you know, if you like the rod. Otherwise, yeah, it's, it, I hate to tell you this, but it's not usable the way it is. Right, and so it's it's put up in a package and. Uh, and just sitting there so that I know I have it. Now, one yeah. other rod that I wanted to ask about, and this is becoming popular, and it may be the same type of rod that we would be using for our plastics, but drop shotting. Now, I know a lot of people that are drop shotting a lot of different things. Yeah. What type of rod would they want to use for that? I even have one that's called a drop shot rod, believe it or not, by uh, Shimano. And and it actually says on there it's a drop shot rod. Now, why? You know, they can call them whatever they want. They can call them crankbait rods. They can call them finesse rods. They can call them crank, rod, crank, crank drop shot rods, whatever they want. But the drop shot rod to me is is typically a little bit, I won't say longer, six and a half or seven foot is pretty good, but it's going to have a little bit softer tip on it for me. You still want backbone to be able to set the hook. But I want to be able to detect when I'm drop shotting, I want to be able to detect little tiny subtle bites. Because as you know, if you're drop shotting in the traditional manner, you've got the sinker on the bottom and the hook stuck up above that on directly on the line, not necessarily on a leader, although it's on a leader if you're using braided lines, for instance. But you've got the hook up maybe 12, 14 inches above where the sinker is. And you're putting that down to where the sinker is ticking on the bottom and you're just barely jiggling the rod tip up above. And you want that soft little action on the rod tip to make that, whatever you've got on your on your drop shot hook, a little short worm or whatever it happens to be, a jig or a skirt, you want it to be able to kind of jiggling in the water above the bottom. But when a fish tights and touches it, a lot of times the, pre- pre- the presentation is so subtle that a fish doesn't come over and slam the thing They'll swim over there and sometimes just suck it into their mouth. And if they realize it's phony or something, they'll try to get rid of it. They'll try to blow it back out. Not always, but most of the time. You want to be able to detect when that happens. You want to be able to feel when that little change in that twitching that you're doing is different. And that's a fish down there that has probably put that lure in its mouth. You better jerk and set the hook. So that's the kind I want. I want a rod with a little bit softer tip, maybe medium light. Maybe that's what I should say. Right. And and I do go with a medium light tip when I'm drop shotting because you are exactly right. You want to feel the weight touching the bottom, and you want to feel when the fish touches that bait. And it is the most sensitive of any of the fishing that, that, that I do anyway because if you don't, if you don't uh, get ready to set the hook, 
when that fish is just yeah. touching it, you're you're going to be you're going to be working on the next fish because it'll it'll swim away. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes when I've this this is a little facetious, but sometimes and and I have actually done this when I've had somebody in the boat with me that hasn't done a lot of uh, soft plastic lure fishing worms, for instance. Uh, they'll say, for instance, how do I know when I'm going to get a bite? How do I know when a fish will bite this thing? It's not like they're eating a worm or something, a real worm, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, look, here's what's going to happen. You throw it out and you let it go down like I'm telling you, and you check it along the bottom. You're going to feel three, three little taps. The first tap is when the fish sucks it into his mouth. The second tap is when he spits it out because he didn't like it. And the third tap is me tapping you on the shoulder with my rod tip and telling you you waited too darn long. You should have set the hook. That was Boy, that is, I, that's an excellent. <laughs> I like that one. Three taps. Yeah, you'll feel three three tips. Yep. It, three little ticks on your rod tip. It took me a long time to to yeah. uh, to get the uh, the feel for uh, for drop shotting. In fact, I didn't like it oh, at yeah. first because it was it it took too much. Um, sensitivity. Eventually, I got it, and uh, and there are several places that I like to go and and drop shot. But uh, I'm finding that Ned rig fishing is a little bit like that too. You've got oh, yeah, to be ready. I, I, I drop shot fishing for well, Bob Judkins and, and Russ Miata and some of the other guys you and I jointly know that we bass fish together. Uh, they used to drive me nuts with that drop shotting thing, and I said, "Geez, you guys are kidding!" I, I've tried. I'm using slider worms. I'm using Texas rigs. I'm using Carolina rigs. I'm doing all kinds of things, but that drop shotting it left me cold. I said, "I, I can't catch a fish doing this." Well, you just got to keep doing it, bud. You got to keep doing it. So I kept trying and trying, and like you, I finally got onto it. It is now one of the real, real good productive methods for me to catch bass. But along comes this thing called a Ned Rig, and you're right. When you fish it, it is also very, very subtle, and I just barely bounce it or touch it along the bottom with that mushroom-shaped head on it, and I tried it a few times, didn't do worth a darn. Now, after just forcing myself to keep using it, you're right, it is a real fish producer. Well, and what I find a lot of guys do is that when they throw their Ned Rig out, the idea at least this is what I've been thinking. The idea of, of that bait is only the tail is going to move slightly like a, uh, I call it almost the wings of an angel flying underwater. So not much oh, yeah. action. So you're not going to jig that, that rig. So there's where my soft tip comes in because I don't want it to move necessarily. I right. want it to, right. I want the water to fl flow over it. So that's why I, was trying to figure out if you only could take one rod or if you only can get two rods, what would be the best? Because I know that a lot of people are going to they're going to want to throw plastics, they're going to want to throw a Ned rig, maybe they're going to want a drop shot, and then maybe they're going right. to want to throw, uh, you know, some sort of a, a crankbait. So that's why I've, that's why I've got this discussion going because I'm hoping that people who listen to the podcast, if nothing else, it'll get them thinking out there. You know, what should oh, yeah. I be yeah. taking? Because I will tell you, I have bought rods. And I bought expensive ones, not not inexpensive ones, that absolutely were the wrong rod. There's two of them sitting in my rod locker that I absolutely will not use. They are just wrong. And yeah. I'm not going to say any names because that wouldn't be fair. But 
<laughs> I didn't know going in what to buy until I started right. studying what other people were using and what to use. So now, now that we've got our rod picked out, now we walk over to the counter and there are those hundreds and hundreds of reels. Which and you're reels? Right. You're right. There are there are as many there are almost as many different kinds of reels as there are lures out there. I mean, you're right. In a big store, uh, you know, a big tackle store, the reel rack looks almost as well, maybe even worse than the rod rack. It will have more selection on it because for every model of reel, there's going to be one or two or three different sizes of the same model of reel. So you take all the different models and multiply that by three or four, and boy, you got a lot of lot of choices to make out there. So now some we, of the we, things. So we've picked yeah, in this. Um, we've picked in this. We'll say under a hundred dollars for for a rod. We'll say. Right. So now. As we start matching this up with a reel, now I know we can get way up there into some real expensive reels. Frankly, I don't buy them because I, I tend to wear them out and I go buy another one. But So let's start talking about the price range that you like for a reel to match up with that spinning rod. Well, if, if I'm looking for, for a real good quality uh, spinning reel, and there are, there, you're right, there are lots of them out there and lots of, lots of different types. Shakespeare has a few good ones. I personally, I and I, I'm not doing a commercial for him, but over the years I have keep coming full circle back to Shimano. I use a lot of Shimano reels. I have some quantum reels that I like as well, and some Daiwa. Believe it or not, there's some Daiwa reels. But one of the things I want to look at <clears throat> on a spinning reel, especially, is is the smoothness of the reel. And I want to make sure I get one with what we call a positive anti-reverse. In other words, the kind that when you stop stop reeling, the drum, the, the pickup drum, will not go backwards. Without, if 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 you've got one that will free spool backwards, that you can turn the crank back on. Most of those reels will have a a little lever on them, as you know, you know, which is the the uh, anti-reverse switch we call it. And if you turn it off, you can reel the, the, hand, the, the handle in either direction, forward or backward. But when you have it on anti-reverse, I want the drum to stop wherever I stop reeling. So that if a fish picks up while I'm fishing, especially finesse fishing, when I jerk, I want to set the hook. I want the line to be locked in position right at that time. I don't want the, the drum spinning backwards a half a turn or something, the way the old ones used to have with ratchet type anti-reverses in them. So I, I want that feature, but I also want some ball bearings in there, especially in the shaft and in the the crank itself that you're reeling with. And you can tell that by the smoothness. You can feel whether there's you know, something grinding or whatnot. And very few reels. Most of them will feel smooth most of the time. But uh, there's some that are overkill, too. You know, and, and, and I don't know, maybe maybe you and I have had this discussion once before. I had a talk with a guy from the factory at Shimano from Japan one time, and I asked him about this one spinning reel they had introduced a number of years ago. Uh, it was called a Sustain, and it was it was suggested to be suggested retail at $400 for a spinning reel. And I said to the guy, geez, what in the hell makes a reel worth $400? And, I say, and he says, 
It's got 11 ball bearings in it. And I said, but a spinning reel doesn't even have 11 moving parts. What the heck do you need 11 ball bearings for? And he says, if we're going to charge that much money, we've got to give the customer something. So we just put more stainless steel ball bearings in it. Well, that's a stupid argument as far as I'm concerned. You don't need to go that route. You can buy pretty good spinning reels with all the good bearings in them you ever need for under 100 bucks. You're you're right, and and I typically try to find one with it. I, I want to say that the number is either three or six. I can't, I can't remember which, but you do want some smoothness to it because as oh, it wears, as yeah. it wears, you will notice that it it slows down. It doesn't really ever yeah. feel like it's not usable. It just the reel slows down. Right now, when it comes to size, uh, I. I used to buy a larger reel, but now that I'm bass fishing more and more, I notice that I'm buying a smaller reel. And what's, well, most, what is your feeling? Let me let me interject on your on your large small business and tell you that you probably noticed this. A number of years ago, the American fishing tackle industry <clears throat> got their heads together, and they did it years and years ago with fly lines, for instance, where they they, they hit a hit a happy standard where they said, "Wait a minute, guys." We're all making fly lines. I'm making this size and this size and this size. And they're all kind of comparable, but we, we recommend them for different things. So they got their heads together, and they said, we're going to standardize the industry and do things by weight and so forth and so on. Well, in the real manufacturing industry, everybody was making different size reels within a family. For instance, if you had a Spirex in Shimano or a Symmetry, there was four different sizes available. There was a 1,000, a 2,000, a 3,000, and a 4,000. Dio may have had a 1,000, a 2,500, a 3,000, a 4,500, or 6,000. They were all different, in other words, but they were somewhat the same as far as line capacity was concerned. So the industry got together and said, look, we're going to start calling all of our reels a 1, 2, 3, or a 4, and they're going to be competing with each other, so to speak, for the same piece of the marketplace. So now you're right. You don't say large, small, or whatever. Do you like a 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, or 4,000 size? And if you were using a 3 or a 4 back when, and now you've scaled down to a 2 or a 1, you've done the right thing. The reels are just as strong, but they're lighter weight. You can use them all day long, and they're, they're perfectly fine. You don't need a big reel. Well, absolutely, and I did. Uh, every all my uh, reels are all scaled back to under 2500. So I've got a lot of right. of the thousand series or 1500 series and some right. some manufacturers. But the other thing that I found, and this was personal preference, is that I like to change out my line. Now there's a c- couple different lines that I will use uh, that I will take off of the reel, turn it around, and put it on backwards. You know, use the other right. end basically. But by using that smaller reel, I found that I'm not buying as much line as I used to because you could spend a lot of money on, on some of these larger size reels just because it took a lot of line to fill them. So, well, you know, here's another here's this thing about line, Don. Phallus, not a fallacy, but it, it's a marketing ploy. Not really a marketing ploy, but it, they, they want to sell more product. You go to buy what they call a reel fill spool of line be it Strand or Berkeley or Trilane or whoever, whatever brand it is, Gamma, so forth, it'll have 275, 300 yards of line on it, on that spool, right? They call that a real fill spool. 
when's the last time any one of us ever hooked a bass, if we're bass fishing, for instance, where the fish strips line off like a steelhead bite and goes 300 freaking yards? I mean, you know how far 300 yards is? I mean, good grief. So I always tell people, don't fill your reel with line. When you buy line and you buy a reel, either put some backing on it or leave some of the older line that's on there. And if you have a way to measure it, put only about 50 yards of line, 60 at the outside on top of your fresh line, and leave the rest of it in there as a filler, as a as a as a uh, arbor, so to speak, to fill up the, the empty space down underneath. Because you do want the line build up on your spool up to the edge anyway, within a sixteenth of an inch or so, to improve your casting distance and so forth. So you don't want to fill it with line that is never going to see the light of day or never going to get out from underneath the bottom of the spool. So I don't ever fill my spools with line. I put backing on them. And I use, quite frankly, I use kite cord. I like cotton string. I fill my spool up with that up to within about three-sixteenths of an inch of the top of the, of the edge of the spool. And then I lock it down and just leave it in there forever. It does a couple of things. Cushions my monofilament when it wants to stretch. And it also absorbs moisture when water comes in on your line. And I just leave it there. And I just take the monofilament off, put fresh mono on top whenever I need line. That's what I do anyway. This is a non-sponsored podcast, so I think we can pretty much talk about who is like. But I will tell you that if you buy a reel, whether you buy it at the, at the store or not, if you will take it into Fisherman's Marine Supply, if you don't want to put your own line on they right. will absolutely put cotton backing on there for you. And they've done it to all of mine, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. And then they will put on uh, between 50 and 75 yards of line, which now That's is only right. yeah, it's only a few dollars. You know, I mean, if I go in there and spend $8, $10 on, on my monofilament line, that's great. It's a little more if I go to Fireline. It's a little more if I go to, to uh, uh, a braid, uh, a heavy right. braid. But right. if, if you want help with that, you're listening to the podcast, you know, take your take your uh, your reel into one of these stores and say, hey, help me out here. And they will absolutely do it. You, that, let, me, let me add to that on the line thing. If you're, if you're a do-it-yourselfer and you do it at home, you buy a spool of line. That's, let's say it has 300 yards on it and you're using a spinning reel. You should get a minimum, a minimum of four bills on your reel out of that one spool of line. And another thing is when you're putting the line on, on a spinning reel, you don't want to put a pencil through the spool and have your spouse or your buddy hold the spool on one side to put tension on while and you put the line on the reel and then use the reel to reel it on. What you want to do is you want to lay the spool on the floor or on a flat surface, run it through at least the first guide coming in your rod, put the reel on a rod, and put lay your spool of line on the floor with the label facing up, facing you. And use your index finger and thumb, if you have to, on your other hand to hold tension on the line between the reel and the first guide and reel the line onto your reel that way to put it on. Let it unwind from the spool while it's laying facing you, in other words, laying flat. Because for every revolution that, that goes onto your, onto your spinning reel, Monofilament lines are not totally round. They're somewhat, they're not flat, but they're a little bit on the ovular shape, I guess you might say, the way nylon and whatnot is extruded. So what happens when it comes over the roller, it's rolling over on the lowest spot, 
and it'll end up putting a twist in the line. So you want it to untwist. So you want it to come off the, the manufacturer's plastic spool and go and go on the spinning reel spool in the same direction that it came off of the other one. Otherwise, it'll put one twist every time it goes around, and you end up with twisted line on your on your reel. Anyway, that's just a little tip. No, and that's a great uh, a great tip because if you're going to reel or if you're going to fill your own uh, reel, you know you should be doing it correctly. Now, the only thing I will add to that is what I have done my own is I'll throw a glove on because uh, I'm right-handed. I'll, th- I'll I'll throw a glove on the left hand just so that I can hold that line so that I'm not right. uh, going to burn my fingers or that type of thing. Fairly snug, right. right. Yeah, fairly snug. Put some, ten- put some tension on it, yeah. Exactly. Now, I, I kind of skipped past your recommendation yeah. for reels and kind of got onto mine. So now, if you were buying a reel, uh, what what's your particular size that you like? Uh, I just, you already said it. Uh, if they if you can find one in a fifteen hundred and some of the manufacturers have gone away from fifteen hundreds and they've gone strictly one thousand two thousand three thousand I would for my purpose of the kind of fishing I do and I do a lot of bass fishing, I would never buy a three or a four if I was a steelhead fisherman, I might consider that, but a one or a two or as you say a fifteen hundred or a two is probably the maximum a one thousand is is a little on the small side, but it's okay for finesse fishing and whatnot. A 500, I would never buy. That's ultralight, and I, I don't have any, I don't have any need for ultralight spinning reels. No, absolutely. I, I have found that that, if I find a reel that I like, it tends to always be a 1500 or a 2500, right. depending on the manufacturer. 1500, 2000, 2500. Yeah, anything bigger than anything three or bigger is not for me anyway. And there's a there's a purpose for them out there, and there are kinds of fishing that people do that that might want to use that kind of reel, that size of reel. But for what I do, bass fishing and, and pan fishing for the most part, I think a 1,000, a 1,500, or at the outside, a 2,000 is all I need. Yeah, absolutely. And I now I have not found, now I do have a preference on rod manufacturers, and I'm not going to not going to make any bones about that, but now from a real well, if you said Saint, if you said Saint Croix, you're right. Saint Croix is is top of the line. Let's face it, and it's one of the few rods that is still exclusively made in the United States of America. They they don't go offshore now. You know, Lamaglass. Ooh, I shouldn't say this. Lamaglass used to pride themselves on everything coming out of Western Washington, but even they're getting some stuff offshore now. So, eh, but. Anyway, St. Croix is good. Yeah, but now, when it comes to reels, I have not established that same, you know, I must have this brand. Um, Loyalty, yeah. Yeah, and I have have several different ones that that I have bought over the past few years. Uh, As long as that reel is smooth to me, I I will grab it out of the the line and use it. Is there a particular one that you like? Well, I, I have been locked in myself, been locked into using uh, pretty much Shimano's for a long time. Casting reels, especially the Cronarchs, I, I love the Cronarch reel, and they still make that particular model. The Cronarch is my favorite. It's a low-profile, multi-bowl bearing, good casting reel, positive anti-backlash, whatnot. But I've also got some Garcias that are not necessarily ambassadors, like the Pro Max and the Black Max and so forth, that are round 
round uh, side plate reels that are small, though, that 1,000 size. I don't like the great big ones like steelhead size, like a, like a 6,000 ambassador, for instance. You don't need that for bass fishing. It's, it's, it's overkill. It's too much muscle. But, but anyway, I've got some of those. And I've also got a couple of uh, Quantums made by the old Fluger company that are really, really nice. Ball bearings, low profile, anti-reverse, so forth and so on. And they're pretty nice. But almost all of them, my preference is to get them in what we call the, the 1,000 size. Uh, they don't make a 1,500, but the 1,000 size, pretty much the same as anything they call a 2,000, except the spool is narrower. So it has less line capacity and a little less, line, a little less weight. The reel is lighter in weight. But otherwise, the side plates and whatnot, the gearing, so they're all, they're all the same. It's just narrow spool version. I've used them all. I carry them all with me. But the ones that I, first and foremost, that I reach for and pick up, and I've just I've had such good luck with them, is my Shimano Cronarchs. I just love that Cronarch reel. Well, and that's a that's a good recommendation. Now, just one note on cleaning the the rod and reel. What is your favorite method for cleaning them? Because nowadays we don't take them to to reel shops to have them cleaned. No, and, and a guy probably should, except you don't really have to unless you're really using it in sandy, grimy, uh, mud kind of conditions. For bass fishing or whatnot, you're not really doing that. So they all have, for the most part, lubricating points on them. And when you buy a reel, it'll have a little instruction book inside or a little, a little exploded view of the thing. Rather than take the reels all apart, unless you're really handy at doing that, there are places you should put some oil, like on the uh, worm gear, which carries the level wind. Uh, you should put some inside the crank knob, take the nut off if you have to, squirt some drops of real oil down into the main drive gear. Down. Most of them are hollow, and they have an oil port on the side there. And on the side cap, take it off and put a little oil on where the ball bearing is on the right side. Most of them now have a palming side plate. So there's no no knob on the left-hand side to take it out, for instance, on a right-handed reel. So, you know, those three points are pretty critical to, to keep some oil on. But there used to be a product by Birchwood Casey, and I shouldn't bring it up because they don't even make it anymore that I know of. It was called Reel Scrubber. And it had, uh, I don't know if it had some kind of solvent in it that evaporated very, very, very quickly, not not quite like, a, uh, oh, what the hell is the paint thinner that, that goes away in a hurry that uh, people use, like meth, methylene or meth, methane, whatever. Anyway, you well, spray it. as was a spray can stuff, and you could spray it on the reel, and the, the grime and whatnot would just run off of there like water running off a duck's back. But I don't know. I've never seen it lately, not in recent years. It's disappeared, and the last can I had, I used it all up, and it's done. So I don't know where you'd ever get it. But yeah, that's, boiling. It, it's really hard to come by because it was used in the dry cleaning industry, uh, trichloroethylene, right. and yeah, right. and it, it, it's a known carcinogen. So it's pretty much gone. You, you pretty much you can't you can't get it anymore. They used it in dry right. clean too, and it's it's pretty much yeah. So that's that 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 part you can't really use anymore. That's why I was thinking if you're oiling it. You're putting the oil on those those points that you're talking about. Just those three or three or four core key points, and you don't have to get to the end. The reels are 
pretty much sealed up pretty good anymore. So you don't really have to get into the gears and all of that stuff inside unless you want to see what they look like on the inside. I mean, you know, casting reels used to have a main drive gear, a little gear that drove the worm gear to make the level line go back and forth, you know, and, and pretty much that was it. Now you open up one of these things and look at them, and you say, these engineers must have had a nightmare trying to design this thing. Because where before a parts list might have eight or ten parts in it, now you've got as many as a hundred different parts in there with springs and cams and levers and all kinds of widgets, you know, that do things. Sure, and unless you sure. get them back in the right order when you put it back together, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Now, we didn't touch on on casting reels. So let's talk, touch on that real quick. I only use one or two of them, but what is your recommendation if you're buying a casting rod? A, a casting rod or a reel? A reel. Reel, sorry. Yeah, casting reel. Uh, some of, the, some of the, the Abu Garcia's thing, the Revo Maxes and whatnot, are really, really good. Shimano has some really, really good ones, of course, uh, the Cronarch being one of them. But the uh, Castaic and uh, so forth, there's there's just a whole bunch of... Uh, Quantum has a good one. Uh, oh, who the hell else has got good casting reels? There's, Okuma has probably the largest selection of reels out there. But I... I think the jury is still out on some of those. They've gotten better over the last five years, but the Okuma had a reputation years ago of, of being really entry-level stuff. But I think Fluter, Shimano, Shakespeare, Daiwa, you pick any one of those in the low profile, pick something with a minimum of three ball bearings, four ball bearings, five ball bearings is even better. Even though they've all got the same number of moving parts and whatnot, the suspension is what's the important part about it. And you want to get a reel that that uh, will not, the, the, uh, the, the two side plates, for instance, in a casting reel, will not go out of alignment with stress. You don't want it to get one that, if you put, put some kind of torque on it with a heavy fish or pulling hard on the line, you don't want the reel to distort itself, so to speak. So a one-piece frame is kind of a real nice feature to have too instead of one with a whole bunch of screws and side plates holding it together all of the good ones have one piece frames oh very good information well i think that we have dug down pretty deep into fishing rods and, and into fishing reels and right. i'd like to thank you for for spending some time with me any last words on on buying a, a rod and reel would you buy it as a combination or do you like picking them out separately yeah, I, I like picking them out separate. Yeah, if you rely on the store, a sporting goods store, a fishing tackle store, or whoever, to make up the combination for you, they're going to do something that will satisfy their need to sell whatever merchandise they've got. I like to be able to pick out my own rod, pick out my own reel, and match it up myself. In other words, not buy a pre-made combo. I want to pick a rod and I want to pick a reel that just based on my knowledge or information I get from somebody that is in the, not, in the know, so to speak, they've recommended to me and, and do it for myself. I like doing it that way. Well, once again, Bud, this has been a really informative podcast. I think we've, we've gotten some good information out there uh, on rods and reels, and I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the information that we brought them. Thanks, Bud. Well. Okay, thanks for talking to me, Don. Well, I'd like to thank Bud for taking the time to talk to me about rods and reels and fishing line. I know that that 
little 45-minute session is jam-packed full of information. You may have to listen to it again. I know that I've had to. Even as I edited, I had to make some notes. But I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope to see everybody out on the water. Please be safe out there. The water is still a little on the cool side. The temperatures up here in the northwest are a little warm this time of year. So be careful. Make sure you're wearing your life preserver. For show ideas or feedback, email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. I'd like to thank everybody. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX. I'll see you on the backcast.